Thanks for tuning in to episode number 175 of the Ruby on Rails podcast. This is Sean Devine. I'm joined today by Carlos Souza from um, Code School. Hey, Carlos. Hey, Sean. How are you doing? I'm doing well. So I've got a quick story to uh, tell you about how I met you. Even though we, we've only just talked right now, I uh, the first time, or, or not the first time, but I knew a little bit of Ruby going back some number of years, but but not much in about two and a half years ago in the like early spring of 2012, I decided to dive headfirst into rails. And I remember I watched the code school courses on rails and I don't remember which of them all were there. Like I know rails for zombies or maybe two or two rails for zombies were out then and uh, a few others. But I remember that you were, I don't think you were the instructor on all those courses, but certainly on some of them. And, uh, I rem- remember in particular that the, the episode that I watched at this Starbucks in river North in Chicago, uh, that you were the, you were the instructor and I was getting ready to call you today. And I had a flashback to that moment sitting on the couch in that Starbucks and, uh, sort of funny a couple years later to be talking about this. Oh, that's awesome. That's, that's really cool. Yeah. So anyways, why don't we, uh, sometimes I'm bad about doing the intros. So let's start at the very beginning. Why don't you introduce yourself and then code school and then you and code school together? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, like you said, I'm Carlos Souza. I work at code school and, uh, we teach web and, uh, iOS technologies online and we always shoot for doing it in the most efficient way. And uh, we want people to learn by doing. That's sort of our uh, our motto. So our courses have uh, interactive challenges. So you actually code in the browser, and you don't have to download anything to your computer for about ninety five percent of our courses, uh, with the exception of a few uh, advanced iOS. And uh, over at Code School, we teach anything from programming languages to uh, frameworks and uh, design, open source tools like Git, Dev Tools, bunch of stuff really. And uh, Objective C and iOS, and uh, yeah, and uh, I've uh, I've been with Code School uh, since about since we launched uh, on uh, 2011, and uh, it's been a great ride. It's super fun, and uh, cool. Well, let me add a couple things about my experience with the Code School that I don't think you mentioned. Okay, so because uh, there, there are a number of ways to learn how to program online, or at least to attempt to, and I think the thing that makes Code School stand out to me uh, uh, when I think about the various ones that I've watched or participated in is its production values are probably at the the far end of good. So, mm-hmm. you know, like way higher than anything else. Do you think that's, is that something like, it, it, tell me a bit more about that. Is that something that you guys sort of recognized right away that you wanted to nail or you saw as a way to, to be more friendly to people that are maybe a little bit newer to, uh, to learning how to program? Uh, first of all, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. And, uh, yeah, that's definitely something that we, uh, we try to make it engaging in, uh, sort of a full rounded, uh, course. And, uh, I think it goes back to us being creatives, uh, not just like programmers. Uh, for so example, t- tell I, me more about that. How yeah. So, uh, I'm a musician. I play, I play music. I've been playing music for years and, uh, Greg, uh, who started the whole thing, he's into uh, performing arts as well. He's into music. And a lot of the people here that work at Code School are into all sorts of creative activities. So when we put a course together, we want to provide a whole experience. So we put a lot of effort into uh, putting together a nice jingle, putting together a nice animation, putting together a theme for the course and uh, our uh, our art director Justin uh, Mazel, he's he's just an amazing, uh, 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 an amazing professional. He's so creative too. So, uh, S- yeah. same same art director on all of the courses. He uh, on the recent courses, yes, uh, not since the beginning. So before uh, Justin, it was uh, Jason Jason Van Lu, who's also an amazing designer and uh, you know has been responsible for uh, you know. RSpec and uh, you know Code School itself, the first uh, iteration of the design, and a, a bunch of our earlier courses like Rails for Zombies uh, and all of that. So uh, yeah, uh, like I said, it's definitely something that we do uh, want to make sure that it's uh, it's as engaging as the content itself. 
So it's it's the whole experience, the yeah. theme, the music, the jingle. I think it's sort of brave, and here's why. So, like, I'll, I'll read the some of the names of the courses for Ruby. So there's Rails yeah. for Zombies Redux. There's Rails for Zombies Two, Rails for Zombie Outlaws. There's <laughs> testing with RSpec, which has this like superhero badge kind of looking logo to it. Ruby bits, etc. And I think that my first impression when I like read Rails for Zombies back when I originally took this course a couple of years ago was probably not positive. Right, like I'm, I'm not a zombie guy. I, like I, I don't know. It just, it didn't, it didn't like strike a chord with me. And the reason I think it's brave to do it is because the only way it works is if it's done really well. Because like a poorly done Rails for Zombies would be a disaster. <laughs> um, and I, I think it's a pretty big commitment to go for because, um, you know, you guys could do a down the middle um, course. I think that that maybe never had a lot of creative flair to it. And it would be, always be okay. Or you like shoot for the moon and it's either going to be like a complete just cluster or it's going to be totally unique and something that people remember. And I think, I think you guys obviously hit the ladder. So it's, it's, it's cool. I find it kind of inspiring. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, that's that definitely what we go for. It needs, it needs to be fun at the end of the day. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, I, so I've got kids and I, it's interesting to reflect on that because sometimes with teachers, yeah, you know, some teachers are very focused on making it fun, and some are less so. And um, I think sometimes my reaction to the teachers that are all about making it fun is maybe a little bit eye rolly. Like I'm, I'm not a hundred percent convinced that that's actually what gets the teaching done. But then I reflect on my own experiences, like you know, feeling, um, uh, feeling maybe a little apprehensive about learning something new, like whether it was Rails or CoffeeScript or jQuery or, you know, whatever it was over the course of the last however many years. And then, you know, if there is some sort of fun hook, it, it helps me learn. So maybe that's probably just a, maybe that's just a thing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we get that a lot from our users actually. Uh, so yeah, you're absolutely correct. You're absolutely right. All right. So tell me a bit about you and how you ended up at code school. Uh, I, uh, I've been doing software for, for about a decade now. Uh, I started in college, so I'm not one of those that has been programming since I was a kid or whatever. It was, uh, mostly when I, when I started in college and I did go to college for a computer science. So it was, it was kind of a necessity to learn how to program. And, uh, once I learned, uh, I really started having fun with it and enjoying it, doing it, not just as part of my profession, but just, just for fun, you know, something that I, uh, that I had fun exploring and problem solving. And, uh, after I graduated, I sort of moved into the web and, uh, looking for, uh, platforms for building web applications. And that's how pretty much how I got into Ruby and Rails. So I, like a lot of people, I got into Ruby through Rails. I heard about the framework, uh, especially about how it uh, facilitated uh, writing tests, and it had the whole a lot of of uh, the characteristics from uh, extreme programming that I was really into at the time. And I know DHH reference, you know XB and the the uh, the books and uh, Kent Beck as one of his, uh, influences in, uh, that sort of, uh, ring the bell. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's where I want to go. So that's what got me into rails. And then, uh, I, uh, in, uh, 2009, I moved to Orlando, Florida. And then I met, uh, the local Ruby developers. And, uh, at the time, Envy Labs was, was just starting and they were growing and looking for more developers. And that's, that's sort of, uh, how I joined End. And then uh, a year and a half later, we launched Code School. And uh, recently, we sort of like divided the companies because uh, when we started Code School, it was obviously not big enough to have its own company right off the bat. So we had people going back and forth between uh, producing educational content and working on client stuff on the MBLab side of things. And I was one of them, one of those people for a long time. So uh, I would finish a pr uh, client project and then jump into uh, writing another course for Code School or doing a screencast or something along those lines, and then go back to doing client work. And uh, so that back and forth ended uh, 
the uh, at the beginning of this year. So that's when uh, we had to officially draw the line and uh, have people 100% in code school and people 100% at the consultancy side uh, with NV Labs. Is that good news, or do you miss the good old days of of being uh, you know mixed no. together? That's good news. What I miss, I miss the good clients. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. I get that. Yeah. So I definitely uh, miss the good clients, but I'm, I'm super happy to be working 100% of uh, my time with educational content. And uh, yeah. And how long ago was that split? Uh, was at the end of last year, beginning of this year. So that was sort of the transition. Oh, gotcha. So you're through the change period, and now it just feels like the new normal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it bums me out to hear you describe that you, you learned how to program when you weren't a kid anymore because you were in college. Because my my daughter Kayla's in college, and the idea that she's not a kid anymore is <laughs> a huge bummer. <laughs> yeah. So it's funny though. I my my first contact with uh, programming languages was before college. I was around eleven or twelve years old, but. At the same time, I was uh, learning how to play the guitar, learning how to make music, and uh, so music sort of uh, took the lead, and, and uh, I gave up on programming. I mean, I didn't know much at the time. I was literally copying and pasting visual basic code that I found on you know random AOL chat rooms at the time. And uh, yeah, I also got into uh, guitar and playing and playing in bands, and at the time, that seemed more attractive to me. So I kind of gave up on programming and just stick with music for a long time until I uh, got into college, and then I started to you know look for a job and and all of that stuff. So uh, yeah. I mean, being able to program and playing guitar are like two of the coolest skills to have, I think. So that's a I think that's a good yeah. path. <laughs> yeah. So do you, do you play music too? Sean? No, not really. I mean, I I I'm sitting in my office staring at my guitar, but it, <laughs> it's uh it's more pretty than than sounding good recently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um I uh, a couple of quick stories about uh learning how to program. So my the the oldest kid is 18 and then two other kids are uh, 11 and 8 for me. So the 11-year-old the other day says, "Hey, uh at school they've got a, a, a learn how to program course coming up." And I was like, "Really? That's that's great." And he's like, "Yeah, but it's it's full." And I I didn't sign up early enough, uh, and uh, you know now I don't think I'm I'm going to be able to do it. And I got all like disappointed. And I said, "Oh well, what the heck? Why is that?" He said, "Well, we need to write an essay about why we should be let into this course." And here, I, the idea that you know you would that we would deny any kid uh, entrance into a course was crazy to me. So I'm, I'm all bummed out and. And uh, asking him maybe to reconsider and he should still submit his essay. And he said, oh, no, the reason that I'm bringing it up is that I uh, was hoping that you could teach me and my friends the same course except outside of school. And it went from like this depressing moment to like this massive victory for me. <laughs> wow. I was like, yeah, I will definitely do that. Well, anyway, so it's it's Scratch, that, that uh, kind of visual programming language from MIT. It's like in browser, you create an app. It's sort of like creating flash games It is sort of the output. And the input is, I don't know, it, these like blocks that you, that you rearrange into programs, but it's, I mean, it's real programming, I think. Okay. And, uh, anyways, so then the eight year old said, well, he got all bummed out and he wanted to join in. So, uh, I, uh, I am, am now the teacher of a a uh, course for 11 and eight year olds on how to program as of this week, which I'm super excited about. <laughs> that is awesome. That is super cool. Yeah, yeah. So, so they'll be able to say they learned how to program as a kid, which is fun. <laughs> and the language, I want to say it almost doesn't matter what the language is. Yeah. I agree right. You, you just want to teach, you know, like problem solving and uh, looking up stuff on their own and uh, knowing how to ask for help, how to ask for help. You know, there's a lot of social skills involved in programming that are pretty much the same regardless of the language that you uh, that you program with, the, the platform, the framework. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Yeah. I think that there's also a learning to see element where, like, I can, I can see the, the light bulb going off in my younger kid that, that, that he connects the dots that, like, the thing he's using on the computer was made by someone mm -hmm. and that, like, it didn't just appear out of thin air. 
and that, you know, maybe if he has an idea, he can make it appear someday. And th that seems obvious to those of us that program, but I don't think it's that obvious, actually. Like, yeah, I actually remember the exact moment when I had that realization. It was uh, when I mentioned that I was uh, around 11 or 12 years old and then I just first heard about Visual Basic. And I, I remember it clearly, the way that my friend who uh, was already into it, he described it to me. He described me as a program to make programs. And then I was like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> that is so, so you mean like regular people make programs? <laughs> yeah. Wow, that is awesome. So My, yeah. my eight-year-old gets, it, it's been funny to see him figure out that, like come to that realization recently. So he, he's very into video games, Big Shock. And uh, so when he thinks about programming, he mostly thinks about games programming. Like that's like, he doesn't care about anything else. And he recently, as he's figured out that the, the games are made by people and he's actually, I think that one of the things that got him interested was the idea that notch, the guy that, you know, originally made Minecraft is a guy. He finds that super fascinating. But anyways, he started to get very interested in like the, like knowing the people. So, Hey, do he, he'd asked me, do I know any games programmers and what do they look like? Are they young? Are they old? Do they play the games? Do they? And, and I don't think he actually cared necessarily about any of those answers. I think it was just him coming to grips with the idea that, like you said, it's like people make programs and that's a weird, it, he just, it just didn't occur to him until then. Yeah. So, yeah. I didn't learn how to program until a lot later. Um, like I, I could hack a tiny bit in my twenties, but I really learned how to program in my, maybe about 33. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is probably a disadvantage, but you know, hey, better better than than never. Well, I don't know. I think uh, like there's a lot of amazing programmers and amazing leaders and amazing open source uh, 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 maintainers. Uh, you know, the first one that comes to my mind is like Yehuda Katz, right? I think he's way way beyond my level of programming and probably what I ever be in my entire life and i think he even started programming after me so it's like whoa he's right? so yeah you want to talk about him for a minute we'll take a, a quick aside sure I, I find him so inspiring yeah <laughs> like I, I i think that he's i i made a joke on on twitter the other day that on election day i think just that if if he was you know he's y cats on twitter uh, w y cats if he was running for office, like you name the office, if he was running for president of the United States, I'd vote for him. Because, <laughs> like, I really believe that too. Because yeah. I just see how he handles himself. Yeah. And, like, the way that he's uh, the, the, the sort of continuous improvement and diligence with which he approaches all tasks and his seriousness. Like, I'm not a super serious guy, but I really like that he's a super serious guy. And he he takes things seriously and re I mean, I just, I'm, I'm unbelievably impressed by everything he does. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he started off, you know, like in the jQuery community, then moved on to uh, starting Merb and then mm -hmm. doing the whole rails and Merb merge thing. And now he started, you know, Ember and uh, leading all of those uh, open source communities that, that that's hard, man. I mean, and if you've, if you've been around programming long enough, you know, programmers can be assholes. Oh, right? yeah. And that, and that can, you know, affect people in, you know, in negative ways. You know, I mean, just look at Jose Valin, right? He's an amazing, uh, an amazing person, an amazing de developer. But after some time, he just got burned out. Right. Is he Brazilian, so, too? He's Brazilian too, yeah. I've had a chance to meet them uh, at different occasions, and he's an amazing person. And uh, but unfortunately, he got burned out after so many uh, 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 flame wars and you know uh, uh, useless uh, uh, feedback from just negative stuff from people on, on GitHub and stuff. He was like, you know, guys, I'm you know, uh, he moved on, right? right. I, I believe he's still active in Rails and stuff, but not as much as he used to. Yeah, I think that I think that um, Yehuda's approach is the is the best one I've seen, yeah. which is why I think his sort of earnestness is important, and that he doesn't get like he does not get involved in like he doesn't punch back, right? He is all business, yeah. and I think that given how toxic the conversations can be, really taking the high road always is uh, seems like the long term play. 
Right. Yeah. Like maybe it's, it feels worse short term, but long term, I think it actually can modify the way sort of the community standards and, and, uh, and I see what he's done with Ember and like, I'm, I wouldn't say that I'm an expert at by any stretch on, um, front end frameworks, but I'm getting there. Like I'm working on it. And, uh, my answer to why I would pick Ember over Angular or React right now is Yuda by itself. Like yep. in other words, I, I just trust his his stewardship of of the framework. I mean, I happen to like Ember too, but but uh, but even if I was on the fence about that, if I thought like, well, React has some things that I like better than Ember, I would still pick Ember because of him. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people uh, think that way too. Uh, I mean, him and Tom, and uh, you know, because those are the two like public facing uh, you know speakers and kind of leaders of the of the amber project but like the entire team and if you if you follow them on twitter and you can see that they're all you know in the same sort of like vibe you know right. that positive vibe you know things are going to be all right you know we're all in this together right and uh extremely respectful to everyone so yeah, yeah absolutely i agree with you on that Tom is funny. This is Tom Dale on yeah. the Ember team. He's, uh, I think he's very funny because he, he also, like you said, he shares the, those sort of core values, uh, I think with, with Yehuda and the rest of the Ember team, but he also is funny yeah, and, and really, you know, takes the piss out of some people often. And I think it's pretty hard to be like earnest and serious and collaborative and respectful and also take the piss out of people. Like that's a, yeah. that's yeah. a, that's a skill. Yeah. And, uh, going back to what originated all of this conversation, uh, those are people that haven't been programming since, you know, since cradle or anything, you know, like they've, they learned, uh, uh, they learned to program not too long ago. If, uh, if you, uh, yeah. compare it to people that say that, you know, they have been programming since they were kids and blah, 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 blah. So that's that's an example right there that you don't have to be programming your entire life to be respected, to be proficient, to be successful, right? People yeah, I think can that's start right. at any time. Well, I think it's also interesting that that here, uh, I mean, you mentioned one thing about how good of a programmer Yehuda is, but uh, of the time we spent talking about you know him and, and Tom, we spent 5%, 10% talking about programming and 90% talking about... Um, social things basically yes. so respectful being responsible being proactive collaborative etc and those are things about being like a responsible adult and you could develop all those skills independent of the programming and then you know tack on the other part i mean if they weren't great programmers i'm not sure that the rest would matter a huge amount but if they were just okay programmers the rest would matter a ton in this community yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, we need to let more people know about this. So newcomers to programming, they might be under the illusion that all you have to do to be successful is to be a good hacker, a good coder, right? right? Which couldn't be farther from the truth, right? Like you said, you need to have those social skills. You need to know how to suggest things. You need to know how to accept criticism. And uh, you need to know pretty much how to belong to a team. How to be a how to be a member of a team? I think the hard part is getting from, and this is probably going to get us back to code school. It's like getting from the starting block to a place where your proficiency is high enough mm -hmm. that the rest matters. It's like right. I can't believe I'm going to use this as an example because I don't play this game or any games like it. But like, if you've ever seen someone play like Call of Duty or any sort of like first person shooter war game. And they hadn't played before. Like, so this happens if I go to like a family party and the teenagers are playing Call of Duty. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And someone hasn't played before and they start playing. It's not, they just get destroyed in two seconds. And right. it gets not fun. Like, they, they never get to experience the, the teamwork side of it because their skill level is so low that it just doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the same with programming that if your skill level is too low, you, it just you get blown up too quick, right? It's a you never get into the mix because you can't have the conversations you need to have. But if you just reach like a basic proficiency level, um, where you you can get by, you understand what's going on, um, then all the rest starts to matter a whole bunch. Mm -hmm. Um, which is why I think something like code school is so valuable. Like whether you went to code school or if books were your thing, but something that allows you to go from beginner to yeah or, or like total novice to like competent beginner intermediate 
that initial period is the one that's so intimidating. And I think anything mm-hmm. that allows you to get through that is, is like the key to all the upside beyond. Yeah, that is true. And that is why I recommend, especially on that be- uh, uh, beginning period, for people to get out there and meet other developers, uh, participate on meetups, uh, participate on hackathons, even if it's just to like see what people do, just to kind of like breathe the air. You know what I mean? Just uh, talk to people, hear from their experiences, because, uh, yeah, it can be very intimidating. So the more you talk to people, the more you hear their stories, the people that have gone through it, uh, uh, the the more prepared you will be to to face, you know, the obstacles. Now, do you find it hard to to get into beginner's mind because you're writing and producing courses now and therefore beginners or intermediates maybe is it I could imagine it being very hard to be able to like transport your point of view into theirs effectively enough so that you could communicate with them well is that how do you do that that is the biggest challenge pretty much it's not learning a new technology and teaching them it's knowing how to teach them, right? Because I know, you know, a couple of different programming languages. So when I learn a new one, I kind of relate to the other ones that I know. So if you're teaching to someone that don't know, that doesn't know any other languages and uh, doesn't have the con- contextual uh, 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 content, <laughs> uh, so to speak, sorry for the, the lack of uh, grammar there, but it's definitely hard. That that is the hardest part when when, uh, when teaching is figuring out uh, uh, how to present it to uh, people that are seeing those type of things for the first time. Right. But that's something I enjoy a lot. I'm uh, I uh, try to participate on meetups, and uh, I used to organize in uh, one of our uh, meetups here, uh, Coding Dojo. I don't know if you've heard about uh, Coding Dojos before. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I not specifically. Right. So coding dojos are a collaborative collaborative environment. It's uh it's basically a hands on activity, right? We pick a very very simple uh, problem problem, and we try to solve that problem uh, by uh, programming in uh, different languages, but following certain rules. Uh, one of those rules. Uh, state that you have to use test-driven development. So that's basically that's basically one of the few rules for the coding dojo. There's there's other social rules like you shouldn't interrupt people and whatnot. But that that's basically uh, uh, the gist of it, right? You try to you try to test drive uh, the solution to a very simple problem, and uh, you do that by pairing with other people and by rotating. Uh, uh, with uh, the other people present in the meetup. Yeah, so I've done that before. We didn't, I didn't, either it was called Dojo and I didn't realize it or it wasn't called Dojo there, but in Chicago, I used to live in Chicago and there was a regular meetup that was exactly what you just said. So either by massive coincidence or just, (laughs) I didn't know that there was that. Yeah, I would assume Corey Haynes was behind that because he's a, you know, a big evangelist of uh, Coding Dojo and Code Retreat. Yeah, Code Retreat. Okay, right. So Code Retreat, I think, was, and then there was a spinoff of that. Yeah, so I did a couple of those. Um, yeah, so I found those to be a great way to get into the mind of beginners, right? Because people that are pairing, you might have a senior yeah. developer pairing with, you know, a complete newcomer to programming, right? And after you do that a lot, it starts to, to feel more natural to do it. So. Yeah, and it's quite easy when you go to one of those to feel like a beginner yourself by picking a... So so the one that I... Or I went to a couple, but one of them I remember... You know, I did one in Ruby, which I'm quite proficient in now, and then one in Java, which mm-hmm. I can like hack, but I'm not good at. And uh, it was pretty interesting because, you know, I went from absolutely having very few questions about how to accomplish what I was trying to accomplish in Ruby mm-hmm. to like uh, quite a few questions about how I should accomplish it in Java. And it's fun to like, you know, to, to jump back and forth between different perspectives yourself. Because then you don't have to try. It's not like I was trying to remember what it felt like to be confused. I like actually just was confused. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. So you're out of your comfort zone, and you're you know in totally new grounds, and uh, and this is especially hard when you change paradigms. So if you go from like 
Ruby to Java, you're still within the object-oriented right. realm. If you go from Java to .NET, that's fine. But when you see yourself doing Clojure, you're like, whoa. Yeah, right. Right. Or if you find yourself doing Erlang or Elixir, then you're, you know, you're really a beginner. I mean, if you ha if you're not familiar with functional programming languages, then you go to uh, from an object-oriented language like Ruby to something like. Uh, a closure or elixir or Erlang, then yeah, you're definitely going to feel like a, a beginner, and that's a good thing. Right? So I've got a, um, I've got a little trick about how to feel not out of my element with functional programming. I'll, I'll share it. Okay. So because because I've um, I've had exactly the experience you mentioned, which is you know you're you're like you said, if you're jumping from one object oriented language to the next, it's not that bad. Um, you know, most of the tough part there is, you know, obviously syntax, uh, which is which is no big deal. But just getting like your machine working, <laughs> like, like like is my environment not busted? But when I go to functional, I at first it feels like I'm in the deep end. But then I remember that I am a very good Excel programmer, <laughs> and Excel is functional programming. It just, you know, that's that's that's. So if you're good at if you are a good Excel programmer, as in you know you could model anything in Excel, you are a good functional programmer. Um, it's just that you have to remember you have to translate sort of the 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 Excel function approach that you use to you know writing it out. But that one little trick made it so that I I went from being kind of quite intimidated because it was so different to actually somewhat comfortable with the concepts because I was like oh right I'm probably better at Excel than I am at anything else mm -hmm. and uh, uh, you know may maybe that's just a crutch to get like to get through the fear and intimidation of something new or maybe actually it is quite a useful sort of mental model I'm not sure but um anyhow. So what yeah. what, are you, what are you learning now? What's your new thing that you feel like a beginner with? Uh, Elixir. So I'm halfway through the Pragmatic Programmers book, and I'm really interested in uh, in seeing what uh, what applications uh, people are going to start building and uh, the adoption, pretty much. Because uh, you know we've heard that Erlang and uh, what's the name of the virtual machine? Beam something. I'm not sure. Uh, machine. So, yeah, I can't find Beam, right. So, yeah, the Erlang virtual machine, you know, we've heard it's good, but Erlang syntax is kind of meh if you're uh, used to uh, right. Ruby, especially, right? And then uh, Elixir is just the best of both worlds. I don't know if you got the chance of uh, to look at uh, Elixir code I, yet, but I have, it's, yep. it's very similar to Ruby. And uh, yeah, it's very pleasant. So that's uh, definitely something that I want to uh, I want to explore and spend some more time with. And uh, other than that, just functional programming in general, because I feel like I lack a lot of uh, knowledge in that area. And there's a lot to learn, and there's a lot that I can bring back to uh, my object-oriented programs and make them better, just from you know functional programming perspective. Yeah, I, and I think that that's. I hear that talked about some, but I think it's a good thing to talk about, which is um, it's not like to it's not like you have to be using a functional programming language to use functional programming techniques to make your code better. You know, and, and like my Ruby code is much better now that I'm focused on some of the principles of functional programming. Like, you know, don't mutate things. Right. 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 Like, you yeah. know, that you pass something in, you get something out, there aren't side effects. And uh, it, it, I think that's one of the benefits actually of going and learning a new thing is even if like, so for example, even if you didn't have a purpose yourself for Erlang, cause you, you didn't, you know, you weren't writing a system that needed the, the benefits of what the fault tolerance and all the other thing, things that it's good for, but you brought back some of the sort of principles that it has behind it and injected them into your other projects. That's probably worthwhile by itself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, it gives you a whole uh, different perspective. And even Rails, it has sort of a combination of an object-oriented approach on uh, controllers and models, but then when it comes to views, and then uh, some of the built-in helpers are more kind of like a functional approach with, uh, you know, the currency to uh, number to currency and all those different helpers. But, right. you know, those are just, just functions, right? Yep. So yeah, I totally agree. The uh, so I, I'm learning Ember right now, as you could guess from before. Mm -hmm. And so, do you know Ember? A little bit. I find it. I'm finding it very exciting. 
Yeah. Uh, the, and I think that the, the, the paradigm that's new for me with Ember is I, I'd never written kind of like a, a client side GUI app, you know, like a windows app or a, or a OS 10 app or something. So, uh, given that I hadn't written one of those, there are a bunch of concepts that I just like, aren't, aren't hard to get your head around, but also aren't how you think about the web. Like, so the way that, you know, the, the rails paradigm is very request driven, right? There's a request, you build up everything, you generate the response, you chuck it down the pipe, and then you sit there and waiting, you know, for the next request. And that's not at all what an Ember app is like. Not at all what I think uh, uh, any front-end app is like. Or not front-end, a client app is like. Mm -hmm. And uh, I found that to be exciting. Like the idea that the app doesn't get torn or built up and torn down on every request, but rather that it sort of persists for the life of the usage of it. Um, Because it enables lots lots of things that... Uh, are I, I sort of obviously want in an app, but if you get used to writing web apps, you, you either accept that you're not going to do, or you, you sort of reluctantly wade into jQuery land, knowing that it's going to be hard to maintain after a while. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, pretty excited about learning more about uh, Ember and just uh, generally uh, client side uh, architectures and uh, yeah, because like you said, it, they're more event driven, right, rather yeah. than request response in. Uh, it's also interesting to see how quickly you can put together uh, a prototype without ever worrying about, you know, the, the back end. Yeah, you fill in the API later. Yeah, so you can start, you know, if you're doing Ember, you can start with something like the fixture adapter. Right. And then, you know, just switch it to uh, the REST adapter or active model or if you want to use something like Parse or, uh, you know, some of the other solutions for, uh, for back end storage and whatnot, so... I find it exciting too because it it takes advantage then of my you know Ruby and Rails skills because I can I can bang out a um, a backend app pretty easily you know I mean like that that's 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 uh, very much in the wheelhouse now right. and so if, if you know you can make anything on like anything I could think of on the client side within reason you know subject to the normal limits of just what computer science is going to allow you know I could make on the back end now. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I didn't throw away all of my knowledge on the Ruby and Rails side, but I'm like extending it into better apps. So I, it's very exciting. Yeah, yeah. I'm uh, I'm especially interested in seeing how, like, sort of like the gray area, how to combine them properly, because I I feel like that's where we haven't agreed on how to properly do it yet. Because you know, Ember type uh, applications are not part of like the core Ruby on Rails uh, 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 principles. So Rails is, is definitely geared towards, you know, server-side rendering and not a whole lot of JavaScript on, right. the, on the client side. And then uh, Ember is obviously all about rich client-side applications. So, yeah, I'm interested in seeing where we go with that. Well, I think that there's an irony actually in in how Rails has approached it because the irony being that, you know, Rails has not, so DHH in particular, and I think the Rails community by extension, hasn't exactly embraced the, the some of the principle, some of the goals rather that um, the Ember team has, right? Which I, I find interesting by itself because, you know, there are a lot of smart people involved in that conversation. And, you know, the, the assertion that Yehuda and company make about the importance of sort of the rich experience that people like about their iOS apps, for example, that, you know, why are we, why do we want to limit the web to not be that when it can be that that's dumb. So, you know, he, he's pushing that side. And then I think the rails way is more document centric with a little mm-hmm. bit of behavior sprinkled on. And the, the irony is that rails sort of reluctance to bake in a, a solution on the JavaScript side, except for jQuery has mm-hmm. actually made it quite easy to integrate with Ember, right? Because it's sort of stuck to the server side world and and hasn't tied itself too much to any sort of front end, um, you know, thicker client approach. So it's pretty easy just to say, okay, the Rails app for, for this app will be uh, will be the API only. Mm-hmm. And then the, the Ember or the front end is coming from a different server. It's not even the same app. Um, mm-hmm. 
and that that's like sort of where I'm leaning now. I'm going to do a bunch of episodes about this, but that if if you want to build an app that's API first, then go Rails it, you know, build the the API in Rails if that's your thing, mm-hmm. and then handle the the front end, the web, you know, the web app mm-hmm. itself as a totally different project. Mm-hmm. Right? Don't serve it from your Rails app. Just do it as a different thing. Make it your first client of the API. Mm-hmm. And I think that I think that Rails sort of reluctance to embrace the the client side uh, or the, the thicker client app approach has actually made it perfectly suited for that world. Hmm. You know, because because it's it's its strengths are right in line with being the back end for an Ember app. And maybe right. you know maybe the answer is that that's fine. Like Ember plus Rails is fine. You know, like yeah. like why stress about it <laughs> not being Rails? Right. <laughs> That's where I am. Like, you know, I think it's too easy to get emotional about it, like wanting it to be everything forever. And, you know, maybe that's not what it's going to be. Yeah. But, anyhow. <laughs> uh, one last thing about Ember before I forget it. So I, I really don't like JavaScript, or I haven't historically liked JavaScript all that much. But I decided that with this Ember push that I was going to... Uh, drop that right like just drop my dis dislike for javascript and start liking it mm-hmm. one way or another and the thing that's been funny about that is my javascript skills are like marginal not bad not good mm-hmm. somewhere in the middle but it reminded me that you actually don't have to have great skills to make good things like if, <laughs> if, if you know if you know the basics how to do the basics with you know primitives you're good mm-hmm. to go mm-hmm. right like i know how to deal with strings i know how to do deal with math i know how to deal with you know enumerables and there really aren't many other things you need to know how to do to make what you want to make it may not be as pretty as it could be you know there may be opportunities to refactor but it's not like a not a huge deal and i remembered that when i was learning ruby that was true like for a while i knew a handful of things but i knew them well and i could make you know most things with those things and then now with Ruby, I, I think I get too focused on being clever sometimes. <laughs> and now with JavaScript, like I have no option to be too clever. Like yeah. I, <laughs> I, I'm just going to get it done. And I actually fi- find it somewhat liberating. Like the code's easy to read because it's like using the 25 things I know how to do again and again. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, there's probably something to that, you know, getting back to basics and saying, you know, hey, what's the, what's the simple, like what's the way that I could solve this that anyone could understand that knew the basics? And I think, and I think that Ember helps you with that because uh, Ember makes it super easy for you to realize what the right way of doing something is, right? So there, yeah, all, all of its conventions and uh, right. the, the best practices that are baked in, they are almost like the practices to follow, right? So uh, yeah, and they they yep. handle the tough things, I'd say. It, Exactly. So, yeah, there, there. Although there are many ways you can do something, you can do things in Ember. The right way is gonna feel right, and then the wrong way is gonna is gonna look weird. It's gonna look like bad code. You're right. you're, you're, go, you're going to realize that you're go, that you're doing something wrong. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, hey, before uh, we uh, head into the last stretch, uh, do you mind if I read our sponsor for today? No, go for it. Uh, okay. So I've I've been waiting all day to conflate your name with the sponsor's name. So not not, not Carlos, but Code uh, Code School. So mm-hmm. uh, Codeship is is the sponsor for today's episode, and uh, uh, Codeship's a longtime sponsor of the podcast, and I thank them for that. Anyhow, they're a free continuous delivery service that's really simple to use. They offer 100 builds per month for five private projects for free. The whole product has a big focus on usability. It's super easy to use. You can set up continuous integration in a few easy steps, and your software will automatically deploy when all your tests have passed. CodeShip has great support for multiple languages and test frameworks. You can easily integrate with GitHub and Bitbucket for code hosting and then deploy to cloud services or your own servers. Start out with CodeShip's free plan. Setup only takes about three minutes. You can find out more at codeship.io slash 5x5ruby. And use the offer code 5x5Ruby to get 20% off any plan for three months. You can also check out their blog at blog.codeship.io to get updates. Thanks again to CodeShip for sponsoring 5x5 and the Ruby on Rails podcast. All right. So uh, 
If you don't mind, let's talk a little bit about the actual process of recording the screencast. Because I don't know if everyone listening has ever tried to do green screen teleprompted recording of shows, but oh, if, yeah. if you haven't, it is an experience. <laughs> so tell me about it. Was this the first time that you had done that sort of thing? Yeah. You mean like uh, code school courses? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It was the first time. Uh, Greg had been doing it even before code school. If you look up some of, uh, uh, I think there were like new relic sponsored videos. Of oh scaling yeah. Scaling Ruby, scaling yep. rails, all of that stuff. Even before then on, uh, his, uh, Rails versus something else videos that he did back in the day. Rails versus PHP, Rails versus uh, Django. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't seen those ones, but I have seen the the uh, New Relic sponsored ones. Yeah. So, yeah, Greg's Greg's the pro. <laughs> so, uh, but when I started doing, it was it was my first time doing it. And uh, it was a learning curve. It's, it's not easy at all being on camera. Uh, teaching uh programming on camera but it's something that i found to be extremely fun to do so so tell me about what's what what were the hardest parts at first uh just hmm hardest parts it's funny because speaking looking at the camera it's way harder than looking at a person (laughs) right so if i look at you and i try to explain you something that's going to be way easier than if I just look straight to camera and uh, try to explain the same concept. I guess uh, that was one of the biggest obstacles that I had to overcome. Uh, uh, I realize I still have a long way to go, but it's definitely uh, getting uh, easier the more that I do it. And uh, yeah, so what, what you see behind is nothing but keynote slides. Right. Right. So all the animations are just keynote slides that we put an extremely uh, 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 a lot of time into making you know the transitions and uh, making sure that the code uh, makes sense that people can follow along with the slides. Really? So, yeah. so what 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 one would watch if they watched a code school course is just keynote with the video dropped in on the you know into the regions. Uh, yeah. Huh. Yeah. I mean, just, uh, in air quotes, cause there's a lot of uh, work that goes behind. Uh, once we do the filming, we have a video editor that does, uh, all the adjustments and make sure that, the Oh like, yeah. I didn't mean just yeah, pejoratively, yeah, yeah, but yeah, like, yeah. like, uh, I, I guess I would have, I mean, it makes sense, but I would have imagined it was, I don't know what, what people use for, for, you know, to produce videos on television or whatever, but no, Huh. Yeah, that's that's keynote, man. We spend a huge amount of time on keynote <laughs> when yeah when doing courses. Uh, we we start off with the with the figuring out what the scope is, so uh, what we want to teach, and more important, what we do not want to teach, what we want to leave out. I guess that is the probably the hardest part uh, when teaching some uh, when teaching people something new is knowing what to leave out. Yeah, that's got to be hard because. I mean, yeah. even though there are a lot of con- there's a lot of content in the courses, and you can't cover that much in that amount of time, right. especially at the level of with the level of care that you guys use. There just it just limits you. Yeah, and at the end of the day, at the end of each course, we want to uh, teach something that's going to be useful that they can uh, have a pre- practical uh, usage for that. So we need to be able to focus on on a deliverable that people are going to be able to use and to build their own thing, right? So knowing what to leave out to be able to put together, you know, a four or five hour course, it's, uh, it's yeah, definitely one of the hardest parts. So yeah, first step is figuring out what we want to teach, what we don't want to teach. Then uh, we put together some uh, demo applications, example applications, and then based on those applications, we, we start producing slides. Right. So I think that the, when, at least when I've done the, the kind of video that you're talking about getting, trying to get rid of your sort of visual and audio ticks is the thing that, yeah, like, like hand gestures is a good example of that. It just, I mean, I guess they're probably awkward in person too, but they're definitely awkward on video. Yeah. Yeah. We always have two people here, uh, in the recording room, uh, so the person that so we have our film uh, uh, 
film editor who's doing the filming, and then we have the the teacher who's uh, teaching the content, and we also have uh, another technical person just kind of pairing and uh, making sure that you know you uh, you you're doing the right thing, or they'll call you out if you need to repeat some something. So, yeah. Uh, how many of the courses have you recorded? Ugh, I don't know. I lost count. <laughs> do you stick mostly to Ruby or do you do other, um, other areas too? I do other areas too. Uh, I've, re- I've been recently doing uh, more JavaScript. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we just finished recording our Express course, which uh, is going to be out sometime uh, this month in November. So I did all of that. And then uh, I, was, uh, I helped out uh, update our Node.js course too. So one of the one of the levels that's me on video and for a lot of the other courses i also help with content but don't go into videos and uh, so yeah i feel so dumb about express so what's the really what, what i mean as in i know almost like i know what it is and that's it i know okay. not nothing beyond the headline so no. give me give me like the one minute express for a for a non-express programmer oh it's it's so much fun express is a web framework for building apis in node uh that's that's it right that's basically it it's extremely minimal extremely performant super easy to grasp and super fun to work with uh i i actually find myself writing way more express apps for simple apis than uh sinatra apps Hmm. So what, though, yeah. what friction is is not there? Like what what changes? I don't know. I think for like small and quick stuff, I kind of I kind of feel like uh, Express feels more comfortable for me and JavaScript. And uh, I don't know if you caught wind uh, a couple of months ago. Uh, Aaron Patterson released, I think it was called Metal. You're just kind of like a proof of concepts, a proof of concept of what the next version of Rack would look like. But if you check that out, that is literally what Express is, but written in Ruby. Huh. So, yeah, it's, it's so easy to use. The API is very simple. Doesn't, doesn't try to do more than what it needs to do. The, uh, the Ember, uh, like sort of like Ember tutorial app that I built had uh, Express... Um, app in it so which is the only recent experience i've had even like being in the vicinity of it but that's it's good to know was it using ember cli well yeah so the okay. the ember tutorial so yeah yes the ember app was was using ember cli and then in order to provide it with an api that um that it could use for for ember data it, it had a like a little express app tacked on yeah express is widely used by by many other uh, bigger frameworks is sort of like the backbone of the, of the server side because it's so lightweight, it's so minimal, so easy to use. I think I'd be more likely to give it a shot on a project if I, like as I become um, like less reluctant to use JavaScript. I mean, I obviously use JavaScript all the time because you have to, mm-hmm. but I'm, I've sort of decided that the next three months I'm going to uh, no longer see it as a chore. <laughs> so once I'm once I'm through that process where I no longer see JavaScript as a chore, I'll probably take a yeah ride of Express. Cool. Yeah. So you don't even know how many anymore. That's a. I don't. <laughs> I don't. Probably like a you know half a dozen or maybe like ten courses or so. Which one uh, got you the most uh, positive feedback? Uh, I believe was the Rails API course, Surviving APIs, uh, Surviving APIs with Rails. That one and the Rails four patterns. I, I I watched the Rails four patterns. I did not watch the other one, but yeah, that was good. Yeah, I think the Rails four patterns was the one that I was the most passionate about putting together because it was the result of uh, a lot of conference talks that I had been doing for many years. Hmm. So I remember really, that. Yeah. That's the one where you introduced the... I remember that was the first... Well, probably not the first because I had read the, the release content from, from the Rails team. But one of the first times I'd seen someone go into detail about the changes to um, active... Um, what's it called? Active query. The, the, the differences in how you actually uh, uh, 
build up active record relations. And okay. uh, uh, that was the same course, right? Uh, that might have been Rails 4 Zombie Outlaws. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, because we had a, a course specifically targeted towards Rails 4 and the new API. And then the follow-up to that was the Rails uh, 4 the pattern, patterns. Which is sort of like the best practices, because yes. I, I don't like to use like the term best practices, but that that's what it was. It was just like patterns to writing better Rails applications. Cool. So uh, Rails 4 being less so the point than the point in time. Yeah, yeah. A lot of those can be used with Rails 3 as well, and even like other frameworks in other languages too. You know, it's like encapsulation, you right. know, single responsibility principle, all of that, all of that stuff. Right. Yeah, so the Rails and the 4 part was yeah. maybe <laughs> not massively. Right, point. yeah, pretty much. <laughs> gotcha. So what's next? Uh, what's what's 2015 hold for you and Codeship? Or Codeship. <laughs> there we go. I knew I was going to do it once. <laughs> I was not on purpose for Code School. Uh, definitely more Rails stuff. Uh uh, we, we're not sure exactly what the format is going to be for the next uh, Rails, uh, our Rails content release. If it's going to be a course or uh, or a feature focus, uh, I don't know if you got the chance to to look at those, to watch uh, any of those series yet. That release, uh, if you haven't, feature focus is basically a video series where we we built a very simple version of a feature from a popular web product, from a popular web service. We put together that feature in a very simplistic way, and then we go on, and then we meet with someone from the original uh, uh, service team, and then we show them our feature, and then we kind of like talk about how they came about, how they built that feature on their own service and uh, on their own services, and some of the obstacles that they faced. So the first one that we did was with uh, Basecamp. So we actually. Uh, replicated oh, yeah. some of Basecamp's uh, feature in a very simple way, sort of like an MVP kind of right. style. And then we flew to Chicago and met with DHH and talked about each one of those features. So we did that with Basecamp, we did that with Groupon, we did that with Threadless. Hmm. So this is actually the genesis of this conversation, and I didn't realize it. So okay. back when, that, uh, when the, the Basecamp one was announced... I saw Greg mention it on Twitter because I follow him and uh, said, oh, that sounds interesting. It was a new thing that you were doing. And I sent him a note and said, oh, you, we should talk about that. Mm-hmm. And completely forgot that that's actually how we ended up talking until you just said this. Nice. Um, but I never watched it, actually. Oh, so, yeah. You should, you should give it a shot. The first one is free. Uh, the Basecamp search one. It's definitely the most popular ones. So. Yeah, uh, yeah. So for 2015, definitely want to do more of those. Uh, people seem to like them a lot, and I personally love doing them because that's uh, that's that's my jam, man. That's what I like to do. I like to you know put stuff out there. Uh, start with simple. You know, I I'm into the whole agile and lean. Uh, you know, MVP stuff. Don't spend time uh, before validating your idea with the with the end users. So that's that's a type of a feature that we we put together on those video series. So. Now, do you have like a pipeline of ones you want to do or are you figuring that out now? We're still figuring it out. We're still figuring it out. We definitely want to explore more of the integration with Rails uh, server-side APIs and client-side frameworks like Angular and Ember. So, yeah. I'm trying to think of what um, what feature I've seen around the web recently that I think would be would be excellent to do that on. I mean, given my current focus on, on richer client side apps, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sort of into that right now. Hmm. Um, cool. Yeah. I think that the, the, uh, this is a, for what it's worth, uh, comment. <laughs> I'm sure you've got a uh, hundred ideas in the pipeline, but mm-hmm. the, the, I think anything that any courses that help people that are, have been writing server side apps sort of transition to the more event driven client side world would right. be great. Because it's just a, it's not complicated to think about. It's just different. Mm-hmm. And I think that there are so many opportunities that you've been like not seeing if you've been building server-side apps because you didn't have a way easily at least to pull them off. That once you once you realize that it's, it's actually quite easy to pull off if you're writing an app that runs in the client. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, it's like when you get a new car and all of a sudden you see that model of the car everywhere. It, that that's what you know. That's what happened to me. Is 
all of a sudden I saw a million different things to build that were sitting right in front of me for years. And, uh, you know, I, I wonder if there's a, if there's an opportunity to write a course that, or courses that, you know, help people make that transition. But yeah, that's a great idea. Anyhow, well, I've enjoyed this. I, that was a quick hour. Yeah. Yeah. I had a lot of fun. Uh, let me, I, so I, I made a, a handful of notes before we started talking. I'm going to make sure I did not miss any of my, my key things. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I think we covered them. So, so I, ha- I have one question. Has anyone ever told you that your voice sounds very similar to Avdi Grimm's? Well, like not specifically, but yeah. Okay. Are you guys related? Do you drink the same water? What's the- <laughs> <laughs> I think like I'm going to have the same answer that Avdi would have, I think, which is, okay. you know, it's just, it's just what, it's just how I sounded like. <laughs> <laughs> nice. No, I, it's, it's, it's a, been a funny time of the year for me. So I, like in general, my voice sounds exactly the same, but I, my allergies are wicked for, for during this period of the year for maybe September through December, beginning of December. Mm-hmm. And, uh, like that's always been a bummer because I've always talked, uh, for a living to some degree, whether it was in more sales roles or, or, you know, having something like this or, or executive jobs or whatever. So it sort of mattered during those, but it really matters if you're recording stuff for, you know, for, uh, every week. And I haven't figured out a solution, just that I, I've accepted that this part of the year I'm going to sound like hell. <laughs> and, it's, a, it's not at all. It's a good voice. It's a bassy, very robust. <laughs> it's awesome, dude. <laughs> oh, well, well, thanks. I don't have the accent that you do, so I've got to go with what I got. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize for my accent. <laughs> uh, is, so when, uh, when did you learn English? I assume it, it second language, right? Yeah, English is my second language. Uh, I actually lived in the U.S. when I was uh, when I was a kid. I went to middle school here, so I guess that made it easier to learn. And then I moved back to Brazil, and then I moved back to the U.S. about six years ago. So, okay, well, yeah. that seems yeah. So that makes sense because it doesn't sound. It sounds like English is native, but with a slight accent. I guess that's sort of the deal. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Uh, do you, do you speak much Portuguese anymore? I do. We have family and friends and yeah. Is there a, a reasonably large Brazilian population in, in central Florida? There is, there's uh yeah, quite a lot of Brazilians here. Hmm. Yeah. I guess that makes sense. I mean, proximity to us to Brazil and, uh, size of Brazil in general. But. Yeah. Yeah. And also like the weather, <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. Florida weather and Brazil Brazilian weather are pretty similar to some extent. So, where in Brazil did you live? I'm uh, I'm originally from Rio, but I've lived in uh, Belém, which is in in the northern part of the country, and I also lived in Sao Paulo. Is is Rio as hot as Orlando? It is, yeah. Okay. Summer in uh summer in Rio is pretty it's pretty hard. <laughs> so I'm telling you, it's, this is uh what a week I'm going to be talking to two people from Rio in one week then. So cool. Uh, the, the, the solo, the, the solo winner of the rails rumble this year is from Rio. Very cool. Yeah. A woman, I actually, I forget her name because uh, we haven't talked yet, but, okay. uh, yeah, she made, um, she made this like packing list, like trip packing list. Yeah. Yeah, that was one of the few apps that I tried out, actually. It was super cool. Yeah, I, I thought it was... Uh, so anyway, so she's the one that did it. It was just a solo entry, and she won the solo prize. So uh, part of the Rails Rumble this year is the winners ended up coming, you know, one of the prizes, so to speak, because they get to come on the show. So I'm recording with her on Sunday, and, and she's from Rio. But yeah, I, like, I think there was not much to that app it, from a technical standpoint, but I think it was great. Like, the, the execution was A+. plus. Nice. Yeah. All right. So anything, uh, anything you want to promote, uh, either personally or any specific things about code school we didn't cover? Uh, yeah. For people to check out the feature focus on Basecamp for those who haven't, it's uh, completely free. You can try that one out and, uh, stay tuned for more courses and, uh, yeah. Uh, what is the for- best way to stay tuned? Is it Twitter or email list or uh, Twitter? Definitely. Uh, we typically announce stuff in our blog too, but yeah, follow the Code School on Twitter. That's when we release uh, when we uh, do all our announcements and stuff. 
And uh, oh yeah, the mailing list. I have to tell. Yes. Oh my god. Uh, we are lucky enough. <laughs> it was, it was have, a close one. You almost missed it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we were lucky enough to have uh, Dan Denny as part of our team, and he's just an amazing designer, and he puts together the most amazing emails that I have ever seen. Like, yeah, That's I look cool. forward to receiving Code School newsletters just to look at what's next. So, I definitely recommend people to sign up for the newsletters. Fun. So is it like is it fair to say that they've got the same sort of visual punch that the courses do? Absolutely. Yeah. We oh, we fun. invest a lot of time into uh making sure that emails are, are fun to look at, are, are you know, pretty and uh engaging. So Awesome. What about uh uh connecting with you on Twitter? Is that a thing? Yeah, that's a thing. Um I'm there too, uh Kaike at Kaike on Twitter or on GitHub or on whatever other social network. How do you spell that? C A I K E. Kaike. Okay. Kaike, yes. Cool. All right, well, for those that want to say uh hi to me on Twitter, I'm barely known. Thanks. <laughs>